You see them. I invite you to turn with me again in your copy of God's Word uh, to the New Testament. This time we are, we are in Matthew uh, chapter 5. You can find our passage on page 810 if you're using those Bibles uh, provided for you in the rack in front of you. Uh, and Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, the theme is the law of God. might not seem like that at first reading, but at least in chapter 5, uh, the theme is uh, God's law. It sort of surprises us that in this first sermon in Matthew's Gospel in the New Testament, from this gracious one who has come is all about the law of God. And he doesn't do what many people thought he would, and frankly what many of us today wish he would, which is just get rid of the law. He doesn't do that at all. He does something very opposite of that. This week, next week, and Lord willing, the following Sunday, we will look at the rest of Matthew chapter 5. There are six topics, all of which are mentioned in some way in the law of God, in which Jesus, as the fulfiller of the law, teaches us how to understand them. We're going to try to take them in pairs. And so this Sunday, we'll look at the topic of anger and lust. Uh, Next Sunday... Uh, at least the, the names in my translation are the topics of divorce and oaths. And then in uh, the week after next, the topic of retaliation and loving your enemies. In each of those, we will understand better uh, God's law through the lens of Jesus, the great law teacher. So follow uh, along with me in your copy of God's word, Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 down to 30. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So, if you are offering your gift at the altar... And there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God will stand forever. Would you join me again in prayer? Uh, Lord, these are uh, hard words for us this morning. Or at least they should be. We ask for the help of your spirit to soften our hearts. That we would hear your word spoken clearly to us. And Lord, as it pins us against the wall with our own guilt, 
I pray, O Lord, that it would show us even more the glory and the grace of Christ. That as we look at such common maladies coming from our sinful hearts like anger and lust, we would leave this place not crushed with guilt, but glorying in the grace of our Savior. Lord, meet with us. Speak to us in these few minutes. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the activities that many of us have gotten used to the past couple years is taking our temperature a lot. Uh, I don't know about you, but I've had my temperature taken more in the last two years than the the previous life up to that point. Uh, Depending on where your kids maybe go to school or where you work, you maybe had to take your temperature every day uh, just to go into work or just to go in to school. My favorite sushi restaurant I have to scan my hand every time I go in in order to make sure my temperature is not too high and I can come eat some fresh sushi. The other day, I was visiting uh, an assisted living home, and to get in, you had to sign a little register to get in. You had to put in your name, which is normal, who you're going to see, the time in, the time out, and there's a new column on the sign-in sheet for your temperature. And they have a little thermometer there, and I took my temperature, and I looked at it, and it said 94 degrees. And I said, okay, wrote it down, and just walked in. <laughs> As I was walking in, it dawned on me, I should probably head to the emergency room. I am about to die of hypothermia if that thermometer is actually right. But I just checked the list and went about my day, and I was fine. <laughs> you know, there's a possibility that there really could have been a physical danger in that moment, Right? I really could have been in danger, and a thermometer that wasn't working right would have told me a lie, and I would have gone about my business as if nothing was wrong. Jesus tells us that there is a greater danger than a physical danger. There's a greater danger of a temperature that's too high or too low. There is a spiritual danger that everyone faces, not just Christians, not just unbelievers, we all face a spiritual danger. And he has given us a tool to tell if we are about to die or not. That tool is much better than a thermometer. That tool is the law of God. But when the law of God isn't working, we don't know about our own spiritual danger. The danger we face with a Uh, malfunctioning thermometer is nothing compared to the danger we face with a malfunctioning law of God. And so this morning, the next two weeks, I want to show you how Jesus restores the law. He restores it so that it works. And he does that in order to restore us. Because without that law, we don't know our illness. And without that law, we remain alienated from God, although we might not even know it. So here's our sermon in a sentence this morning. Jesus restores the law to restore his people. It's that simple. He restores the law in order to restore his people. What's the problem? The problem that Jesus is addressing, we covered last week. As he comes to tell us, as he teaches, rather, why he has come and the reason is to fulfill the law, he gives this warning in chapter 5, verse 19. He says, whoever relaxes 
one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. What's the problem? The problem is relaxing the law. So Jesus has, has come to address his followers and his followers are being taught and led by the Pharisees of the day. And Jesus says the problem is that the Pharisees, those who you think are the great rule followers, are actually relaxing the law. That means they're making it easier to keep, right? They're bringing it down to a standard that they can keep. Right? They're, they're, they're making all of those check boxes and keeping the law attainable. And so when Jesus begins all six of these sections, he says, and you have heard that it was said. And then he seems to quote, at least this morning, he seems to quote the Old Testament. He seems to quote from the Ten Commandments. What he's actually doing is not criticizing the law of God. If he was doing that, he would criticize what had been written. Instead, he is criticizing what they had heard said. What have they heard said? They've heard the, the teaching of the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are teaching the law, adding things to it, or the other way around, they're actually relaxing it so that they can attain it. Doesn't seem like that bad of a problem, right? But then when you you think about it, when God's law is relaxed, it lies to us. And the lie is this. You're okay. (laughs) You're not really that bad. Just try a little harder. And you'll be fine. I mean, this week, if you just, y'all, if you just tried a little bit harder, you keep the law, and you come back here next week, and, and you're going to be great, right? You're going to be fine. Just work a little bit harder. I'm going to give you a couple extra tips to keep the law of God. That's the, the Pharisee teaching, and the lie of a relaxed law is that you're okay. Jesus has come to say the opposite of relaxing the law, right, is upholding the law. It's clarifying the law, or it's our word for the morning. It's restoring the law. And so he always criticizes six times what the Pharisees had said, and then he follows that, but I say to you. So here is Jesus, the perfect law teacher, giving us the true direction of the law. And the direction of the law of God is to our very hearts. The law is inward. The law is spiritual. So just as a malfunctioning thermometer lies to us and tells us that we're okay, so too does a relaxed law lie to us and it tells us that we're okay. So Jesus restores the law, changes the batteries in that thermometer, makes sure it works to show us how desperately We need to be restored to him. From relaxing to restoring. I want to show you how he does it in two ways in this section. What does a restored law do? When the law is actually working, what does it do? Well, number one, it exposes our guilt. The law of God that is not relaxed but is restored exposes our guilt. And I'm not going to look at anger and then lust with two points. We're going to look actually at the the first part of the command on anger and the first part of the command on lust because both of those expose our guilt. Then we'll come back to the application in the second point. So how does the law expose our guilt? Well, we see in the topic of anger, verses 21 and 22, that 
Anger breaks the sixth commandment. Okay? Sixth commandment is you shall not murder. Seems fairly easy to keep, right? I don't think it's that hard to go through your life without killing someone. (laughs) Should be a fairly simple law to keep. But Jesus tells us here that when we are angry, when we have anger, when we're angry at someone, we are also guilty of breaking the sixth commandment. Even if we don't do anything, the anger itself that arises out of our sinful hearts is itself a violation of the sixth commandment. The apostle John says in 1 John chapter 3, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. It's pretty clear. Anger, as you see here, is an emotion that we have. I know some of you had it on the way to church this morning. You had some road rage, right? (laughs) Maybe you had some anger last night. Maybe you're in a season of anger right now. We all know uh, what it is. We are all guilty of it. It is both an emotion within. Look at verse 22. He says, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to the judgment. And then also whoever insults his brother. So that's a word, an action that arises out of the anger of our hearts. So we know that to murder someone breaks the sixth commandment. We know that saying harsh words to someone breaks the sixth commandment. And we learn from Jesus that hating and anger in our hearts is a breaking of the sixth commandment. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, what about righteous anger? Most of, I, maybe I get angry a little bit. Most of my anger is righteous, so I sort of I think I'm okay. I would say you're probably a liar. Uh, there is such a category in the Bible as righteous anger. When we see Jesus angry, he's not sinning. He's righteously angry when he's flipping over tables, right, in the temple. Uh, the Apostle Paul even tells us in Ephesians chapter 4 to be angry and do not sin. So there is a category for us for righteous anger. That's just not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about your sinful anger. He's talking about anger that arises out of the sin of your heart. He's addressing a universal problem. He's not saying one half of you is okay because your anger is righteous. The other half needs to be convicted. No, it's, it's everyone has this problem of sin in our hearts. I remember years ago, I was talking with somebody and he was we were dealing with some anger that he had. And he knew the Bible and he said, look, I know I'm angry, but I'm not an angry man. And I didn't know what he meant. I didn't know what he was talking about. And, I, and he said, you know, the Proverbs talks about an angry man. I'm not an angry, I just I get angry, but I'm not an angry man, sort of in capital letters. I thought, what are you talking about? There's no, there's no different, there's no sort of special line in which we cross that all of a sudden our anger is, is now condemned by God, but when it's over here, it's just sort of, sort of okay, right? There's no, there's no sort of levels to this. Jesus' word is clear. Anger breaks the holy and perfect law of God. When we hold up a relaxed law to our lives, and if the law only says just don't kill anyone, well, then the thermometer says innocent. When we hold up a restored law to our lives, the thermometer flashes red, guilty, guilty, guilty. Anger breaks the perfect law of God. 
That's just the first one. The second one here is the sin of lust. Skip over to verses 27 to 28. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. There's the seventh commandment. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, this is grammatically, of course, this is addressing men, uh, but we know that all of us, men and women, are both susceptible to break the seventh commandment. It's not like women only need to worry about the other nine commandments. No, we all break all of them. And so this is speaking, the focus is on men, but of course it's speaking uh, to men and women. Now, what is the sin here in particular? Look back at the words. He says, everyone who looks at a woman, and here's the key, with lustful intent, right? A lusting look, or just like with anger, we might say, adultery in the heart, okay? We don't, I don't think you need to spend too much time on the definition of either of these. <laughs> and we've lived long enough as sinners in a fallen world that we all have firsthand experience of what these both are. And for the Pharisees, these are pretty easy commands to keep, right? All you have to do is not kill anyone and not cheat on your spouse, and you're good, right? And Jesus says, whoa, 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 whoa. (laughs) The law is not here. The law is, is way up here. Our confession of faith, the Westminster Confession of Faith, has a little paragraph on the law. It's got some old language, but I want to read it to you. It says that the law is perfect. The law binds everyone to full conformity in the whole man, that's the whole person, and entire obedience forever. It requires utmost perfection in every duty and forbids the least degree of sin. That thermometer held up to every single one of us sends out blaring alarms and calls 911 emergency for us, right? Did you see the consequences of both of these sins? The consequences are no less than hell itself. The end of verse 22. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that the whole body may be thrown into hell. This isn't a mild fever that will go away in a day or two. There's only two categories. (laughs) There's innocent and guilty. And the restored law of God looks at every single one of us and declares guilty. Sometimes Christians want to be holy, right? We are called to holiness. We aim for holiness. We try to obey God's word. But sometimes in order to do that, we just... We kind of take that law down a couple notches. <laughs> we, we don't even know. Where, I mean, it's the biggest rule followers who are actually the ones guilty of relaxing the law of God. I mean, think about that for a moment. If you're the biggest rule follower that you know, 
maybe there's a tendency for you to actually be lowering those rules. Or you're, you're making the standard of the law high enough for everyone else, but not quite high enough that you can't get it. In our zeal for holiness, we need to be careful not to somehow make God's law keepable for us. Right? Now, I'd also say a warning for some, some of you here who probably don't believe in the Bible, who don't believe in Jesus, who don't believe in this talk of God's law. Well, I, would, I would challenge you to think, where have you gotten your sense of right and wrong? Where has it come from? You might not agree with all of the rights and all of the wrongs that we find in the law of God, but you probably have some sort of moral code that I believe, I think the Bible teaches, that that's because God has written that on your heart. I want to ask you, do you live up to your own moral code? Or you also stand condemned. The verdict of the law is simple. It's guilt. Here's where we all often mess up. The law tells us we're guilty, and then we say, okay, I am condemned. Now, law, help save me. And the law is worthless to save you. A thermometer will never save you. (laughs) It just tells you you need to be saved. The answer is that the law takes us by the hand and leads us to the foot of the cross. The law of God that condemns every single one of us as guilty takes us to the only one it does not condemn. The Lord Jesus, the only one who was never sinfully angry. The Lord Jesus, the only one who never looked at a woman with lustful intent in his heart. The Lord Jesus, who never broke a single one of the commandments. The Lord Jesus, who kept every single requirement of the law. And what happens on the cross of Christ is that he takes your record of guilt to himself. And he stands before the judge of the universe. And you remember that that description of Jesus who is silent before his accusers? You know why he's silent? Because he's standing under the weight of your sin. He has no case to plead besides guilty. And then he takes his record of perfect righteousness, of every requirement, of every, what did we read last week? Every iota. Every dot, every jot, every tittle, every I dotted and T crossed, every last one of the greatest and the least commandments of God. And he gives us the verdict of innocent. And there at the cross, it's as if there's a trade between the guilty rap sheet of every one of us and the perfect righteousness of Christ are traded. And we get the blessing of the law keeper. That by faith in Jesus, we are treated as if we had never done any of this. We are treated as perfect and righteous in the eyes of God because he kept the law. Now, if your thermometer is not working, it's not exposing your guilt and it's not driving you to Jesus. But if it is, Don't make the mistake of looking at the law as the one who saves. It will never save. It only works to push us and lead us and drive us to the foot of the cross. A restored law restores the people of God 
by exposing our guilt and taking us to our Savior. What do we do with the law of God now? Should we just abolish it? Is it just good enough to take us to Jesus and no more? Well, no, he's already told us he hasn't come to abolish the law. So what do we as the children of God do now with his law? Well, we need to follow it over and over again to the cross. But he shows us secondly in these verses, he shows us a, another way the restored law works in our hearts. And the, the second way is this, it guides our response, particularly it guides our response to sin. We see this in the second part of the section on anger and the second part of the section on lust. So the question is this, all right, as a Christian, when these sins appear in our lives, how do we respond to them? And Jesus teaches that the response to anger is to be reconciled and the response to lust is to be pure. I'm going to hit hit on each of those. Verses 23 to 26. The law guides our response to anger by leading us to be reconciled. So here's what anger does. Anger destroys us. Anger destroys us. And it destroys us from within. It, It eats us alive. I don't know what, I don't know what provokes your anger. I don't know if it's a personal relationship. I don't know if it's the news. I don't know if it's your job or your boss. It's your kids. It's your parents. It's your teachers. What provokes your anger, but that unrighteous anger destroys us from within. But Jesus' point here is not only destroys us individually from within, it destroys our relationships. The two examples he gives here are how anger breaks our relationships with others. There's two illustrations. I actually didn't realize this. I thought it was one, two versions of the same. I think it's actually two different illustrations of broken relationships. The first is verses 23 to 24. It's a broken relationship with a brother in Christ. Not, not, a, not a biological brother, not male only, a brother and sister in the Lord. How is that relationship broken? It is because of sin, Look back at 23. So if you, let me just say, you are the the one who has been sinfully angry at your brother. That's who Jesus is talking to. If you, the one guilty of sinful anger, are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Okay, a couple points about this. The altar here is the altar in Jerusalem, in the temple. We're reading about it, rebuilding in, in um, Ezra. All I could think about was Ezekiel. In Ezra, uh, the rebuilding of that altar. So Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount in Galilee to mostly Jewish hearers who would travel a few times a year down to Jerusalem to, to make offerings at the altar at sort of these regular annual feasts. And if they travel all the way down there, it's a long journey. It's a couple-day journey. If they get there and they're about to offer their offering and they remember that somebody back home has been offended by their unrighteous anger, they should stop offering and go travel all the way back to Galilee, be reconciled, then travel all the way back to Jerusalem. I think this is a form of hyperbole. This is Jesus speaking sort of in extreme terms to make the point. And the point is, 
Go be reconciled. And the people he's talking to, he's talking to the sinner. You know when you get angry and you kind of lose it a little bit of somebody? You think, I'll just blow over. They'll, they'll forget it. I'll forget it. We'll, we'll be fine. We usually downplay our own anger, and, but it doesn't feel good to have somebody be, talk to us in anger, does it? Who usually forgets that first? Probably the one who is ready to forgive themselves and move on. Jesus commands in Matthew 18, if you've been sinned against, go to the one who has sinned against you. In Matthew 5, it says, if you're the one who somebody else thinks you've sinned against them, you go to them. It's like the Christian life is we're always going to each other, trying to be reconciled with each other because we're always sinning against each other. The direction of the Christian community is going to each other all the time to be reconciled, to settle accounts with each other. Theologians have often looked at this verse and applied it in the New Testament when there isn't an altar with the the celebration of the Lord's Supper. It's not the same thing, but the Lord's Supper we also call communion because it represents communion with God, but we don't take it alone. We take it together because it represents communion with one another. And so oftentimes if we are in the body of Christ but are at odds with another because of sin, it is right for us. To first be reconciled before taking the meal of reconciliation and communion together. The second example, verses 25 and 26, is not about a brother. It's about an accuser. This is sort of a legal example. Uh, that You're literally on your way to court together. And Jesus gives pretty worldly wise advice. Right, go ahead and be settled because if you're not and you're the guilty one, uh, look what might happen to you. You're thrown in prison uh, and you'll never get out. The point of these two illustrations is be reconciled. And the the verb that we are commanded is go. (laughs) Go and be reconciled. In Sinclair Ferguson's chapter on this command in his book on the Sermon on the Mount, he writes of the urgency and the necessity of reconciliation. The urgency and the necessity to be reconciled within the body of Christ. That's how God's law leads us to deal with our anger. Now, do not all get up at once right now. But when we're done, who do you need to go to? You don't have to do it today. Who do you need to go to this week to be reconciled? The second way that God's law guides our response is in verses 29 to 30. And it is how do we respond to the sin of breaking the seventh commandment by our lustful looks? The answer in verses 29 and 30 is to be pure. Um, People ask about this a lot, right? What is Jesus talking about? Cutting out our eye and cutting off our hand. Well, I think he's again speaking in hyperbole. He's exaggerating to make a point. And you do too. I mean, Uh, Everyone I see has two eyes, and all of you have two hands. That doesn't mean you're all telling me you've never lusted before. You also interpret this uh, with some form of of hyperbole. Now, there were some in the early church who didn't. Apparently, there were people who would literally cut off their hands, obeying this literally. When you think about this, what really causes you to sin? Is it really your eye, or is it your heart? And the same eye can look at, A woman and not lust and lust. The same eye, the eye is not the problem. 
The problem is the heart. Jesus' lesson is simple. Be serious about your holiness. And particularly, be serious about sexual holiness. The old word for how we deal with sin is to mortify it. To mortify. You could maybe hear that the root of that word. That's to put it to death. When you find sin in your heart, in your life, put it to death. And y'all, if Jesus had to warn people 2,000 years ago of the dangers of lust, how much more does that apply in the 21st century? How much more do we, men and women, face endless temptations today that we must mortify? I'm not saying they didn't have their problems back then. But we sure have our problems now, right? I don't have to quote the statistics for you to know that pornography is a rampant problem in the world and it is a problem in the church among the people of God. And Jesus is telling us to take it seriously, to take sin seriously. Let me give you a couple words of application as we aim as men and women to keep this command to be pure and keep the seventh commandment. Number one is confess your sin before your God. In this world, we are less and less concerned, I think, with the problem of of lust, right? I mean, it's used by advertisers to sell you stuff. (laughs) And so you begin to think less and less that it's really a spiritual problem. But Jesus is telling every one of us here that it is. And the answer to our spiritual sins against God is to repent of those sins is to confess before our God how we have broken his law that is restored before our very eyes. I think a second application is that we should consider what it is. What is the cause? What leads us down these paths? What takes us to unhelpful and dangerous and sinful places? And how might by God's spirit, how might he work in our lives to empower and strengthen us against Those temptations. And then a third C of application is to lean on your community. When we battle sin, going it alone is a recipe for disaster. The problem with this sin in particular is it's hard to talk about with other people. And I would encourage you, don't go it alone. Talk to someone. Talk to a trusted friend. Talk to your parents. Talk to your elder. Talk to your pastor if you trust him. When we face these endless temptations, we must take them seriously. We go to confession, we study the cause, and we lean on our community. Jerry Bridges has a book called Respectable Sins. It's on my bookshelf. It's one of my favorite books. He's not arguing that some sins are okay and respectable and some aren't. Uh, He's arguing that we sometimes as Christians begin to think that certain sins are really bad and other sins are merely respectable and they're not really that frowned upon and sort of okay for us to commit. We wouldn't say that, but we kind of live that way. And I, I fear that sometimes things like anger and lust are so prevalent that they sort of fall into this category of respectable sins. And we're sort of these pragmatic Pharisees. And we go back to thinking, I'm not, I haven't murdered anyone. I haven't committed adultery. I haven't cheated on my spouse. What's the big deal? You see, when the law is restored, 
when it's not relaxed, when it's restored, it leads us to Christ. And it leads us to the free and full forgiveness that can only come at the cross. If you are trying to deal with the shame of lust by working really hard and building up a lot of good deeds, you will only be crushed. If you are trying to to deal with the shame of anger by just, I'll just be nicer today, or I will direct my anger to people online who don't even know me, right? You will be crushed. Only in Jesus is there the full forgiveness of the gospel. And now, as his restored people, we love this same law. We love it because it drives us to the foot of the cross. And we love it because it guides us now in the Christian life. It's not burdensome to us. It is our guide and our friend that shows us how to live in a life of of peace and restoration and purity. See, the lie of a relaxed law is you're okay, just try a little harder. But the truth of a restored law is you are not okay. You're not even close to being okay. But in Christ, you have been restored. As you leave today, I have a thermometer in the back. I don't really. But what if, what if, you are all to take your spiritual temperature this morning as you leave. What would it say? Would it say you're doing just fine? Would it say you're okay? Would it say your good's outweighing your bad? And I would say to you, Jesus would say to you, your, your thermometer's not working. <laughs> it needs to be restored. You have relaxed the law of God, and you have no idea what peril that you are in. Does your thermometer say that you are dying without hope? Does it say that yeah, you see your guilt and you are crushed by it and you keep going back to the law and it offers nothing to you and you are always overwhelmed and burdened by the shame and the guilt of your sin, the guilt of your lust, the shame of your anger? Well, stop looking to the law and let it drive you to Christ. In your despair, do not try to work harder. Jesus says, come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Or does your thermometer say that you are forgiven? You are walking in grace. You are tripping and falling, but by his mercy, you are getting up again the next day. Does it say that you are at the very same moment a sinner and guilty according to the law, but just and innocent through the finished work of Christ? And I say, amen, that law is finally working right. In your life. May God restore his law in our lives that he might restore us in his grace. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, wherever you find us, whatever our spiritual temperature is this morning, we pray, O oh Lord, that you would lead and draw us back to you. Lord, we need the convicting power of your law applied to us in all its rigor and all its holiness by the Holy Spirit. We squirm 
under that conviction and think of every way to get out from under it. Oh, God, pin us in our guilt and lead us. Take us by the hand like a guide takes a child and lead us to the foot of the cross. May we see your law rightly in order that we might see your son rightly and rejoice in the glory of the gospel today. We ask all of this in the precious name of our Lord and Savior. Amen.